Beside a drying brook is where God has put him because the ravens will feed him nowhere else. God said clearly, there the ravens will feed you and there you will drink of the brook. Here's where really, I think, getting into deeper water, no pun intended. But the drying brook was designed for, by God for a purpose. So we notice in the passage that something's going to happen to the brook. Something's going to happen to the brook. You shall drink from the brook, that I've commanded, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. So we went and did it. Now, verse 7, And after a while, the brook dried up. So a few things for us to notice here. The first thing to notice is there's no indication that the ravens stopped. Isn't that interesting? So apparently that the ravens are still bringing food, only there's no water. So what do we think of that? So the first thing we see is, is we're not told that there's a stoppage of the food, there's not a stoppage of the ravens, but it, we are told that the brook did dry up. Now, we also see after a while, verse 7, after a while, the brook dried up. So that says to us that it doesn't stop immediately, that it's sort of a slowing down, more of a natural process as the drought is taking its effect on the land, then the brook is going to do exactly what we expect it to do, and that's to slowly dry up, wither, and then eventually it's gone. We're, we're told in uh, the ESV that we're reading here, after a while, if you're reading in the King James, then you have another phrase. What's that phrase? Anybody have the KJV? And it came to pass. You recognize that? You should because it's all over your Bibles. That's a phrase that we find all over the place, specifically in the Old Testament. And it came to pass. Now that phrase, and it came to pass, is like a clue for you. It is like a, a signal alerting you to something because when we see that phrase in the Bible, what it means, what it's pointing to, is something that happens as a result of God's will. Now all things happen because of God's will. God is sovereign, we know this, and so nothing happens that He does not will to happen or, or, or ordain to happen. But when we see that phrase, and it came to pass, what follows is always something that God specifically, intentionally, purposely wanted to happen. And it came to pass that the brook dried up. So it's not as though the brook dries up and God says, well, didn't see that coming. Or, darn, took care of the food, but forgot about the water. It comes to pass because that's what God wants to happen. Now, the phrase, and it came to pass, scholars have looked at that and they have indicated that that, that, that phrase seems to coincide with a period of time of about a year. Now, I don't know if that means that Elijah is by the brook for a year or not, Last week, I think it was last week, I said that Elijah's going to be by the brook for three years, and I was wrong. And nobody caught me on that. Nobody, nobody took me aside and said, you were wrong. But Elijah's not going to be here three years because he's going to have to have some time in Zarephath with the widow there. 
So it may be that he's by the brook for about a year, maybe more, maybe less. But it's undeniable that he's here for a while. This isn't something that happens in a few days. It's going to take some time for the brook to dry up. And as it dries up, it's not going to dry up instantly. God's not going to shut off the spout, which would have, as we're going to see as we go through this, would have been an easier test for Elijah than the slow, trinkling, drying up of the water. The slow drying up of the water is going to be, as we'll explain, one of the most difficult tests of faith that Elijah will have to endure. So this the question here, the questions that have got to ravage Elijah's mind, because put yourself in his position, okay? You've got miraculous birds coming every day. And the birds don't stop. They keep bringing food. But then you've got the brook that's drying up a little bit every day. Every day when Elijah goes down to the river, the trickle is smaller. The bank is wider. The edges of the bank are getting dustier and drier. And the ravens keep coming. The questions that have got to have raged in the prophet's mind. God, did I misunderstand this? Have you forgotten me? Have I displeased you? Am I no longer your prophet? Do you mean for me to go elsewhere and look for water? God, why have you brought me here for for me to thirst to death with the full belly of food? You kind of get in the sense of the test of faith that Elijah is in? Because this makes no sense for God to provide His food and not His water. This is something that transcends human reasoning or human understanding, which is what's going to make the test so hard. Furthermore, this is a test of a slowly drying brook. Had God stopped it instantly, at least Elijah could have said, well, that's the hand of the Lord. The the brook was four feet wide yesterday. Now it's dry today. Obviously God did that. But for it to dry slowly, bit by bit, and for the prophet every day, every day he's got to fight that battle, the battle of faith. God said, this is where I go. And he's not told me to go anywhere else. What do I do? Did I misunderstand this? Does God want me to to maybe dig a well here? Does God want me to go try to get some water somewhere else and come back here? The angst, the spiritual uncertainty that he had to have faced. Because what God seems to be saying to him are things that by human reasoning don't seem to add up. This is a remarkable test of faith. So what his temptation is going to be, one of his temptations, there's going to be many that we're going to see, one of his temptations is going to be to scheme. Can you put yourself in his position? To scheme. Try to figure out how this is going to work. Maybe I dig for some water. You know, there's another brook that I saw just maybe half a mile that way. Maybe, maybe the brook Cherith, if I go further up, 
Or maybe the brook has two arms to it and, and I'm on the wrong arm. Maybe, maybe this little tributary over here is where I'm supposed to be. You see? The drying, the slowly drying brook is one of the most remarkable tests of faith. It has been said, I don't know who said this, it has been said that the highest form of obedience is to wait by a drying brook. Not a brook that God turns off, but the highest test of obedience and by connection, the highest test of faith is to wait by a drying brook. And all of us have drying brooks in our lives. It might be the drying brook of financial security, financial prosperity. It might be the drying brook of of, uh, marital connection and happiness. It might be the drying brook of relationship with your children. It might be the drying brook of, uh, of a culture that at one time at least honored God in some superficial sort of way. It might be the drying brook of of usefulness within the body of God's people that you see slowly drying up. But all of us have those avenues of blessing, of prosperity, and of pleasure that God gives to us that He then allows to slowly fade away. And that is a true test of faith. The test of faith that, in Elijah's case, is to remain by a brook And there's going to come a point where he's going to go out there one morning as thirsty as he can be and he's going to see nothing but but rocks and dust. And what is he going to do? One thing is made clear to Elijah is that this is the place that he is supposed to be. Beside a drying brook is where God has put him. Because the ravens will feed him nowhere else. God said clearly, there the ravens will feed you. And there you will drink of the brook. So God has taken Elijah to a a specific place of his blessing and his providing for him. And the place in which God has taken him is a place that appears to be drying up in its prosperity. And so the test of the prophet is, God told me to be here. Here is where the ravens go. That's not to say that that if Elijah had left, that God would have let him starve. I don't, I don't know that. But that is to say that by that brook is the place of God's greatest blessing and God's greatest security and God's greatest providing for him. And God often does that for us, doesn't he? That there is a place that is the place of greatest blessing and usefulness and providence. And that place might be a physical, geographic location. But more often than not, it's, it's not a, a geographic location as it is as much a, a, a place in our life that God puts us in. And that is the place of greatest usefulness and greatest blessing and greatest growth in faith. And that's God's pattern, isn't it? Esau's bowl of stew lasted a moment. <laughs> and then for the rest of his life, he regretted the birthright that he lost. Or... Um, the Israelite children. Their greatest place of blessing was the land of promise. And yet God provided for them by the same old manna for 40 years that after the first month had gotten old for them. And they had 39 years and 11 months to go, that stuff. And even with the manna, where was the manna? 
when they followed the cloud. There was a place in which was God's greatest providing and God's greatest providence. The prodigal son in his father's house ate from the riches of his father's table. When he left his father's house, he nearly starved, eating the slops of the pigs or uh, even Jesus. Jesus, before he breaks the bread and multiplies the loaves, he gathers the people by fifties and has them sit down in certain places. Or, or I think of Abraham and Isaac. How often did both Abraham and his son Isaac leave the place where they were supposed to be, which was the land, the promised land, to go to Egypt for safety or security when there was coming a famine or a drought or something like that. And God didn't let them die there, but they sure did struggle. They, they sure did suffer for leaving the land. It appears to be God's pattern that He has a place in our lives, which is the place of greatest usefulness, the greatest growth, the greatest spiritual vitality, the place of greatest uh, blessing from the hand of God. I think of the Lord's Prayer. You remember the Lord's Prayer, of course. And as we pray the Lord's Prayer, in this context, we're talking about our daily bread, right? Elijah is literally given daily bread from the beaks of, of ravens. But do you know what comes before the daily bread? You know the order of the, the Lord's Prayer? It's a specific order. Jesus said it in, a, in the order that He wanted to say it. And prior to give us this day our daily bread is Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the daily bread follows the Thy will be done. We want to reverse the order, don't we? We want to say, God, give us our daily bread and then we'll think about Thy will being done. So we need the daily bread in order to do Thy will. But God's order is the other. Place yourself in your life. Maybe it's a, a location. Maybe it's a certain body of people. Maybe it's a certain sort of usefulness within the body. Maybe it's a certain ministry task. Maybe it's something in your life. Place yourself in that place and that it will always seem to be the avenue of greatest usefulness and blessing for God's people. I think of a, a you remember the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody familiar with that story? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the greatest, most brilliant young theologian minds in the 1920s and 1930s Germany. God blessed him with a profound mind to grasp the things of God, and he was in his early 30s and just had just the world ahead of him. When, of course, through the 1930s, we know what was going on in Germany. So in the early 30s, Bonhoeffer spent a little bit of time pastoring some, uh, a couple of German-speaking churches outside of Germany. One was in England, one was in Spain. And then he gets invited to come to the U.S., to a Union Theological Seminary in New York, which is, has since become one of the most liberal places in the country. But he goes to Union uh, Seminary in New York, and he's invited to come there and do postdoctoral work. And he's just celebrated as this young mind that everybody wants to listen to. And he's got literally just the world ahead of him. When, in 1935, he decides to go back to Germany. Now, he had already been outspoken about Hitler and the Nazi regime and what was going on and how God's people cannot abide this. So he already had a target on his back. Everybody who knew him said, do not go back there. We know what's going to be waiting for you when you go back there. But he goes anyway. Because he felt called of God to go and minister to God's people in Germany. So he goes back to Germany in 35, 
He establishes an underground seminary in which he's training house pastors because the true church really kind of went underground at that point. So he's training house pastors in this underground seminary in Germany when we all know exactly what's coming. Everybody said to him, you can't stay here. The things that you say and the things that you write, they're not going to tolerate that. You are going to end up incarcerated. And he had enough connections. He had enough friends. He could have easily gotten out of Germany. But he says, no, this is where God has put me. This is where I'll stay. I'm chained to God's people here. And we know the rest of the story. He's arrested. Incarcerated, spends most of the war incarcerated. And uh, literally, I think it was a week before the surrender of Germany in that flurry of executions in which the Germans wanted to kill all the, the, the really important people, everybody they could, he was executed like a week before the Germans surrendered. And people say, what a waste. What a waste. He was a man who was gifted by God with such a mind. And here he was executed in his 30s. But the place of greatest blessing and greatest usefulness for Bonhoeffer and for Elijah was exactly inside the fire in which God had placed them. So we see this in Bonhoeffer's life. We see this in Elijah's life. We sung it earlier. I shall not be what? I shall not be moved. So moving on. Again, no pun intended. God places within Elijah's power the ability to end his time of trial. Did you notice this? God places within Elijah's ability, seemingly within his ability, the opportunity to end his own trial of faith because Elijah, by his own words, proclaims there will be no rain or dew until I say so. Now, he says that clearly because that's what God has put into him to say. And we don't take that to mean that Elijah really believes he has the power of rain and dew. But nevertheless, he said what God told him to say. And now... He has no water. You see, it, it, it seemingly is within his own power to bring an end to his own test of faith, to his own time of trial. Making his test of faith even greater, even harder, even more difficult because a test of faith is easier to endure when you feel like you have no way out. The only way out is forward. If you've got a way out and you've got to resist that way out, then isn't that a much harder test of faith? I remember back uh, in my Marine Corps days, early 1990s, indoctrination, recruit training, that sort of thing was different than it is today. In those days, recruit training, there was no easy way out. One of the things, one of the many things that was drilled into our heads was if you want to quit it's going to be way harder to quit than it is just to stick this through. Because you could, if you were determined to quit, you could quit, but it was made so abundantly clear to us that those who say, I'm done, you leave that island much, much later than everybody else. So there was a saying, the quickest way off the island is across the parade deck, meaning graduate, that's the fastest way off of here. That made that enabled them to push us far further than they would have today when there are easy ways out. 
because we, we were convinced that there was no easy way out. They, they could then push us much harder and much further because the test of faith in the same way is much harder when it seems like you have the power to end it. Think of Jesus. How does the tempter come to Him? You had anything to eat for 40 days? You must be hungry. Certainly God wouldn't object to a few loaves of bread from these rocks over here. This cross thing that's lingering over your head, certainly you would rather skip that. Or think of the garden. As Jesus is sweating drops of blood, I'm convinced that in the garden that the greatest temptation Jesus was facing was the temptation from the tempter saying, you don't have to do this. Look at what a difference you're making in people's lives already. You don't have to do this. But seemingly having this easy way out, oh, the temptation, oh, the struggle, the heartfelt struggle that the prophet struggled against as he was looking at this dusty brook bed and thinking how parched his mouth is and remembering what his same mouth had spoken maybe a year earlier to say, it'll rain when I say it when I say it'll rain. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.